Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. He went down south looking for here. What a great organization you have here. It's, I, saw, I saw the list of speakers, and wow, it's, uh, it's an honor to be part of this uh, illustrious group of speakers. I am going to start my lecture today by giving you some quotes, and I want you to tell me which type of people might say such a quote. First one is this, I can't believe Jeremy co-chaired the campaign. He's always been a mensch, and now he's a real macher. You must be shepping so much nachis right now. Who might say such a quote? Your mother? Your grandmother? Okay, an older woman, right? Um, okay, here's the next one. The sugya we're learning is too lumdish to say outside. Anyone? Well, who might say such a thing? So this is an Orthodox Jewish-English quote, and it means the topic in the Gomorrah that we're studying is too complicated to summarize. And it actually comes from a book called Frumspeak, the first dictionary of yeshivish. And it would be said probably by a young man in a yeshiva setting. Here's another one. George Washington was a hero, a first-class hero. In the middle, the coldest weather, he crossed the ice in a little boat. He should catch the British and the missionaries fooling around, not with their minds on the war. Who might say that? An immigrant, right? Someone whose native language is Yiddish. And this quote actually comes from a book called The Education of Hyman Kaplan by Leo Rostin from 1937. Here's another one. I spent the whole party schmoozing up the vice presidents. I must have given my spiel six times. A non-Jew, any American, right? And you can see spiel instead of spiel and schmoozing up instead of schmoozing with someone, right? A different use of that word schmooze. So yeah, it could be someone who's not Jewish, right? Okay, what do all of these quotes have in common? You tell me. Yiddish. They all have Yiddish words in them, right? Some of them have Yiddish grammatical constructions or Yiddish-influenced pronunciations, but they all have some Yiddish influences. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on today, how American Jews use influences from Yiddish within their English. And I'll be talking about general American English, like schmoozing up and spiel, and Jewish English from a few different angles, the Yinglish of the immigrants and their children, the way that non-Orthodox Jews speak English, and then the way that Orthodox Jews speak English. And I'll be giving you information from literature, spoken language, and popular culture. 
But first, a little bit of background about Yiddish. Here's a map. This comes from my website about Jewish languages. And it shows right here we have Israel, right? Um, each area that has a different color represents a different language that Jews have spoken throughout history. So we have Judeo-Arabic down here in yellow. We have Judeo-Italian, uh, Ladino, Judeo-Spanish, Ladino here, um, Judeo-Portuguese, Judeo-Greek, etc. This one, oh, India is off the map, but there's another one down there. But here we have Yiddish, the big uh, turquoise one. And that is, has a very interesting history. It started out, the history is co controversial, but here's my understanding of it. It started out when Jews from Italy and France moved to Germanic lands, and they picked up a Germanic language, incorporating a lot of Hebrew words, Aramaic words, and distinctive ways of pronouncing things and saying things. And then they moved to Slavic lands, to Poland, the Ukraine, Belarusia, eventually <coughs> Russia. And they incorporated many Slavic influences in their language. So when we talk about Yiddish, we're talking about four different components. German, it's primarily German. And many people who speak German can understand some Yiddish and vice versa. And then many words and grammatical influences from Slavic languages like Polish and Ukrainian. Many Hebrew and Aramaic words that come from the traditional texts, the liturgy, the Torah, and the rabbinic literature, but also Hebrew words that were created throughout the ages. And then a few words from Romance languages. Let me give you some examples of how these components interact. So here's a sentence. Der Seide hat gebencht Hanukkah-Licht. It means the grandpa or my grandpa blessed Hanukkah, the Hanukkah candles. Okay. So where do these come from? Most of the words are Germanic. GM refers to Germanic. So der hot, and then in the word gebencht, the g and the t are from Germanic, and licht candles is from Germanic. Hanukkah, obviously from Hebrew. Now, benchin is a great word because it means to bless. And the Jews who spoke German picked it up, started using that word because the German word for bless is zegenin, which also means to make the sign, as in make the sign of the cross. Jews didn't like that. So they maintained a word that may have been used by some of their great-grandparents in Italy, benedice. It means to bless. And so benedice becomes bench. So amazingly, Yiddish keeps this word, and we keep it in Jewish English. So we still say, um, are you ready to bench? Or are we going to bench licht, right? Um, and sometimes that means to say grace after meals. Sometimes it means to say a blessing or to light the candle. Um, and zeda is an example of a Slavic word, a word from Polish or Ukrainian that becomes part of Yiddish. Here's another example sentence. This is from a song, Hoben mir anigendel in naches und in Frieden. It means, we have a melody in pride and joy. And this one is all Germanic except a few Hebrew words. Nigendel comes from nigun, meaning a melody. And it has the dull ending, meaning a diminutive. And naches is nachat, meaning pride. And this is more common. A lot of Yiddish is mostly Germanic, 
with a few Hebrew words here and there, but you do also get the Romance and the Slavic words. Here's one that's kind of an exception. This phrase is dabernisht. Der Oral is maven kol dibber. It means don't speak. The uncircumcised one understands every word. <laughs> okay? And <laughs> this one is much more Hebraic than most Yiddish sentences because, well, will you tell me, when might someone use this <coughs> sentence? Didn't want somebody to understand. Right. And in particular, who? Who didn't they want? Christians, specifically German-speaking Christians in a Slavic environment. Because usually, Jews might assume that non-Jews nearby wouldn't understand because they're speaking a Germanic language when most people around them speak Slavic languages. But if someone speaks a Germanic language, you can't say, you know, you can't say, don't speak, he will understand you in German, right? So you have to use the Hebrew words. So this is a secretive language that Jews have used in various places around the world where they incorporate Hebrew words into the structure of their local language. Now you might think, okay, Yiddish, this is crazy, so many different components mixed together, but English does basically the same thing, right? We have the Anglo-Saxon component. If you've ever read Beowulf, you don't understand it at all because it's written in a different language essentially, but that's what English originally was before the Norman Conquest. And then we incorporated all these influences from French and also lots of influences from Scandinavian languages. So you have shirt and you have skirt, which come from the same Proto-Germanic word, but I think skirt is from Scandinavian and shirt is from German, and so these become different words in our language. We also have names of animals and the meat that comes from those animals, like cow and beef. Cow is from German, beef is from French, or um, pig and pork. Am I allowed to say that in the synagogue? Um, pig is from German and pork is from French, right? And that's because the people who would work with the agriculture were more lower class and the upper class people, um, you know, they, they took the words for the foods that they saw as more upper class from the French. Okay, so we have this in a number of languages, various languages influencing the primary spoken language. And of course now, we have many influences from immigrant languages. Can you think of some examples, aside from Yiddish, of words in English that come from other languages. Pizza, okay, what Spanish words can you think of? Taco. Adobe, okay. What else? What? What's Vega? Oh, thank you, I learned a new word today. Uh, is that from Spanish too? Okay, so we have a number of words from Spanish, a number of food words from Spanish and Italian. What else? Spaghetti, Rio. Sierra, okay, so, so geographic terms, what? Siesta. Siesta, okay, so other cultural terms from Spanish. Um, what about any Asian languages? Can you think of words from Asian languages in English? Kowtow. Kowtow, okay, what else? Sayonara. Sayonara. Tsunami, sushi, chicken tikka masala, right? <laughs> um, okay, so, so we, we combine words from many languages within English for various things that we don't have words for already, right? And for other things, even if we already have words for them, we sometimes do it too. And Yiddish is one of those donating languages. So now we'll talk about how these Yiddish influences work in English. So first, the immigrant generation. Here's another quote from, 
This one's from 1928. Milt Gross is, was a, a very um, brilliant cartoonist and, and writer, and he used a lot of Yiddish immigrant dialect in his writing. And here's a quote that is about um, the, this is about the Adam and Eve story. So the first human being what it existed was entitled Hedem. So Hedem lived gradually in a place what it was the Garden from Eden. So in the Garden from Eden was extremely gorgeous what it was there, all kinds from fancy fruits. Okay, so here, this is an interesting one because you don't have any Yiddish words, okay? What you have is Yiddish structure and Yiddish pronunciations and some hyper-corrections where people know that they're dropping their H's, so they add them in even when they don't belong, like an Adam, Adam becomes Hedem. So, so we get a number of examples like that, like the Leo Rostin book from the literature where you have the way that a Yiddish-speaking immigrant would speak English. But you also have that in subsequent generations. Not exactly the same because it's not, because they're native speakers of English, so they're not going to use the Yiddish pronunciations in, in every word. So let's see what happens in the subsequent generations. You tell me, what Yiddish words are used today? We're going to talk about this in two different categories. One is American English that you think most people in America would know, or many people, including, including those who are not Jewish. And then we'll talk about the ones that are specific to the Jewish community. Okay, so let's start with American English. You tell me what, what we should fill in here. Okay, I heard schlep first. Schlep, yes, schlep's an interesting one because it means to carry, right? But it has become an intransitive verb. Like, I schlepped here all the way from Tucson for this, right? And, and so that you're not schlepping something, you're schlepping yourself. That's intransitive, right? So an ex interesting example of how these words change as they are incorporated into new languages. I heard chutzpah. So chutzpah, what does it mean? Okay, nerve, unmitigated gall, cheekiness. Is it negative or positive? What do you think? It's both, right? Now, in Yiddish, it's pretty negative. It is, and in, in Israeli Hebrew, it's also pretty negative. It's a chutzpah, right? It's, it's about like, like something you want to criticize someone for having that chutzpah. But in America, it's become more positive. And in fact, Oprah Winfrey had the chutzpah awards, or probably the chutzpah awards, right? And you get politicians mispronouncing it as chutzpah, right? Um, so you definitely see how these words change as they move from primarily Jewish circles to the more broad American society. What other? A number of curse words also. A number of curse words. Do you want to share some with us? Schmuck. Schmuck, yeah. Yeah, schmuck and putz. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've seen the word Drek, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So we have a lot of these examples. Um, uh, also, a lot of food words like bagel and lox and kosher. Good. Well, it is, it is, but the way it's used in English. That's right. That's right. Exactly, and the way it's used in Yiddish is more in line with how it's used in English. So the, the English usage comes from the Yiddish word. Um, okay, so we've done a number of examples of American English. What about Jew? Oh, another one, by the way, is klutz. A lot of people don't know that that's from Yiddish. And pastrami. Pastrami comes from Yiddish, originally from Romanian, um, but it was 
introduced into American English by Romanian Jewish immigrants. Shlemiel, yeah. good. Chachi, yeah. Shrek, yeah, yeah, good one. Okay, so let's move on to Jewish English. What about words that you think really are used primarily in Jewish communities from Yiddish? Mamzer, meaning bastard, mishpacha, good. Machaya. Now, interestingly, so far these are all words that are also Hebrew. Mamzer, machaya, and what was the one over here? Mishpacha. Those are all words that are Hebrew and Yiddish, interestingly. Okay, what else? Goy and shiksa, also from Hebrew and Yiddish. Machatanam, good. Machatanam meaning your in-laws, right? Your, your child's spouse's parents. Okay. What? Shviger, interesting. Good. What else? What? Maven. Maven, yeah. Kibitz. Yes, some non-Jews use it too. Oh, kibitz. Good. What a Schwitz, yeah. Okay, great. What? Schwanger, yeah. Good. Okay, so we're now going to go on to, you know, some food words that most non-Jews wouldn't use, right? Um, yeah, and actually on a survey that I did, I found that mensch is used, uh, you know, some a little bit by non-Jews, but, but most Jews know it and, and most non-Jews don't. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. It's a great point. It's it's a great point. You certainly absolutely <laughs> nice. Okay, it's absolutely true that um, the New York area is it's much more common for non-Jews to know these words, um, but they're used in the media some of them, and so you get them, you, you do get people all around the country knowing and using some of these words. So macher. Uh, macher is one of these words that, this is an age range on the bottom, and okay, I know you didn't expect to come here having to read graphs, but those of you who like to read graphs, tell me what you see here. Okay, right, it's less in the, in the younger generation. This word is, is diminishing, right? So older people are more likely to use it than younger people. And that's the case with many Yiddish words. But you get the opposite trend with some words. So this one is the word shul, meaning synagogue. How many of you use that word? A lot of you. People out here, I use it a lot. People out here don't say shul as much as they do back east. Oh, interesting. They say temple. OK, interesting. Um, right, so there's a, certainly a denominational split that Orthodox, I mean, the, the, the conventional wisdom is that Orthodox Jews go to shul, conservative Jews go to synagogue, and Reformed Jews go to temple, right? But that's not really true anymore because the word shul has become so common, and so younger people of every denomination are more likely to say, I'm going to shul. Um, but you see how, how that, that's the opposite trend than what we would expect, right? So here's what I found. Here are some of the words that are decreasing. Macher, kepi, nachis, hamish, and bashert, right? And here are some of the words that are increasing. Shul, bench, lane, and davin. What do you notice about these words? What do they have in common? They are all about religion, right? And because these Yiddish words have become markers of religiosity and in the same way that bench and um, cholent, we didn't talk about cholent yet, another word from romance, became part of, of Yiddish in its early years, right? 
Cholent is a word from French, and it means, oh no, sorry, this, is, the, the, sorry, this lane means to read Torah, to chant Torah. Yeah. Um, so shul, bench, we talked about lane meaning to read Torah and daven meaning to pray. Um, but cholent comes from a French word meaning cholent, meaning warm, meaning warm, um, related to the Spanish word caliente. So these are the words, some of the Yiddish words that are increasing. And so that's the words that are used by a lot of non-Orthodox Jews. Let's now turn to some words that are used by Orthodox Jews. So we have many, many words from Hebrew and Yiddish that are used in Orthodox communities. Um, so mamish means really. Baruch Hashem means bless God. Mirz Hashem meaning um, im yirtze Hashem, if God wills. Machlokes uh, or machloikes meaning argument. Shalashudas meaning the third meal of the Sabbath, so an early um, Saturday afternoon or evening meal. Shabbosim, the plural of Shabbos, Sabbath. Talesim, the plural of talis, to be zoche, it's a construction where you take the verb to be, and then you have a Hebrew word, um, and that is common in Yiddish, and that construction gets used in English. To be zoche means to merit, and chiddish, which means an innovative point, and that's where I came up with the title for this talk, from chutzpah to chiddish. Um, chiddish means um, something that you didn't know before that someone came up with, right? Yes, exactly. Chidush. It's from the Hebrew word chidush, yeah. And then we have a lot of Yiddish words that are not from Hebrew, like tish, meaning table, but it means a celebration around a table. Blech, meaning a piece of metal that you put on your stove to enable cooking over the Sabbath so you can keep the stove on. Take, meaning really. Steig, which means to rise, but it metaphorically means to study, to study Torah. Stender, meaning a um, podium, which would be nice to have here, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, parv, meaning not milchik or fleshik, not meat or milk. Um, milchik and fleshik, right? Milk and meat. So, so you have a lot of words from Hebrew that are also in Yiddish and a lot of Yiddish words from the Germanic and Slavic elements of Yiddish. But it's not just words that influence Orthodox Jewish English. We also have pronunciations, like saying goink, instead of going, or beard instead of beard. You, you, the, the final letter of these words becomes unvoiced, okay? Um, and intonation, if you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> or more subtly, if you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, or coffee you want, okay? That's actually not really Orthodox Jewish English. That's more like the Yinglish of the immigrant generation, right? But, um, but you certainly get um, some distinctive intonation in the Orthodox community, partly because when you study Talmud, there isn't punctuation on the page. And so you have to distinguish one phrase from the other, and you do that with your intonation. And of course, we have grammatical influences from Yiddish, um, like, I want that you should see this. This is not what to record. I didn't like when she said that because I was recording it, but I got that one on tape before she told me to turn off the tape recorder. Um, who are you staying by for Shabbos? Yeah, right. So these all come from Yiddish. I think there's a Yiddish speaker in the house. Okay. Um, when are you coming to us for lunch? That to us is from Yiddish. Uh, we learn out from this, and it was given over to Moshe. 
So these are all influences from Yiddish grammatical constructions that are used in Orthodox communities. And we see a similar age trend to what we saw with Shul and Davin, that younger people are more likely than older people to use them. This is, this is an Orthodox um, sample from my survey. And you see how the younger people, almost all of them, report using staying by us. And the older people, very few of them use that. So this is a construction from Yiddish that is becoming much, much more common in Orthodox communities. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Here's a quote just to give you an example of how, the peop how people in some Orthodox communities will speak in a Talmud study setting. And this is from a Chabad young man. Whenever you're a shaykh, then you can be an aide. Whenever you're not, you're not. So why does Rashi say? That's because dina de machus adina. It's because they're, even if not dina de machus adina, Rashi says later, because al din hu needs tabu b'nei nayach. The gayam are shaykh to dinim. They're not shaykh to gitin. That's why it's good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so is that, is that Yiddish? Is it English? Is it Hebrew? Is it Aramaic? No, it's a combination, right? It's, it's yeshivish. It's, it's how... Orthodox Jews in America speech, speak, right? So now I'm gonna see, we're going to see how this all plays out in some songs. Okay, I brought some songs, and um, I'm going to show you songs from Yinglish and from Yeshivish. Um, that is from The Immigrant Generation and Their Children by Mickey Katz and Seymour Rechtzeit. And then I'm going to show you two contemporary-ish Yeshivish songs uh, from Country Yossi and Journeys. So first, Mickey Katz who was born in Cleveland, so he's American-born, but he grew up in a Yiddish-speaking environment, and so he can sound American, and he can sound like an immigrant. And here we go. This is David Crockett. Can you see it? Okay, what did you notice about this one? Did you notice Yiddish words? Yeah. A lot, yeah, what else? Yeah, he sounded like an immigrant, right? What else? What was it? The rhythm. Okay, what about the rhythm? Well, it's repetitive. Okay, okay. What else? Yeah, so it's a, it's a parody of Davy Crockett, right? Um, and certainly you, um, 
you, if you don't know Yiddish and you don't have the translations, there's a lot you wouldn't understand, right? They're sort of assuming a knowledge of Yiddish. Okay, let's go on to the next one. This one is by Seymour Rechtzeit. He was born in Poland in 1911, but he moved to America at a young age. And so he also can sound like an immigrant and like an American. Um, and this song is it's also a parody of The Syncopated Clock uh, by Leroy Anderson from 1945. This one's called Shicker Ticker. <laughs> Oops, yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, okay, so what did you notice about that one? Ah, higher class English. She almost sounds a little British, right? Yeah. What else? Right, you really don't understand it if you don't know Yiddish or have the translations there. Um, and so a lot of words from Yiddish and grammatical, some grammatical influences as well. Okay, let's move on to the yeshivish songs. The first one is by um, Country Yossi and the Stiebel Hoppers. And this one's a parody of Big Bad John. It's called Big Bad Moish. Okay, what did you notice about that one? I understood a lot more of the words. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right. This one has a few uh, expressions, Vildeferd and Tiefendred, that are, that are known by a lot of children of immigrants, but not a lot of people beyond that generation. Um, and, and certainly uh, this here you have Davin, Shul, and Shalom, a lot of the words from Hebrew and Yiddish that are common within Jewish English today. What's that? Oh, which? Right. So, Vildeferd. Uh, I mean, literally means wild horses, but here it's obviously referring to you know unsavory types. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And Tiefendred is deep underground. What's that? They used Vildeferd instead of because it rhymes with Dred. Exactly. Exactly. And interestingly, you he isn't using the Yiddish R. 
the R is the American English R, right? Whereas in the other one, even in English, they were using the Yiddish pronunciations, okay? Um, okay, so now let's turn to the final song, and this is Yeshiva Charade by A.B. Rotenberg and the band Journeys. Etc. It goes on like that. And so here is sort of the exception that proves the rule almost because you have many, many Yiddish words that you wouldn't understand, but it's because it's because it's a song about Yeshivish language, right? And so it's phrases from Yiddish and from Hebrew and Aramaic, um, and what's the Chiddush there is in there, right? Um, but notice also the New York influences. Talk of the town. Right? I wrote talk, even though I could have written talk, to emphasize that it's New York pronunciations, right? Yeah, yeah, it does have a rap quality. And so these are, all of the songs that I've presented are in the style of contemporary music to some extent. The first three were parodies of actual songs. This one is an original song. And it's kind of this weird combination of 80s pop with a little Eastern European flair, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, okay, so now we're going to, yes? Ah, okay, um, let's see, uh, no Aramaic words in this particular one. Um, I think later in the song they do have some phrases from the Talmud that are in Aramaic. So Aramaic is an ancient Semitic language that the Jews picked up when in the Babylonian exile and then also later in the land of Israel that is similar to Hebrew, but is also has, has its own um, distinctive features. And it is um, the language of the Talmud. So a lot of Orthodox Jews who study the Talmud incorporate some phrase, words and phrases like dafka and maitaima um, um, and havamina, things like that that come up in Talmud study. Oh, very good. Yes, yeah, so uh, the Kaddish. Yit gadal v'yit kadash. That's in Aramaic. Okay. Okay, and kol nidre, and brich um, rachmana, and um, some of the prayers we say when we're taking out the Torah. So yes, we do have a lot of Aramaic that is still in our liturgy today. Yes. Very good, and also some contemporary Jews. Um, it's dying out in the Jewish community, but there's a great book about this actually called My Father's Paradise written by the son of an immigrant from Iraq to the US uh, whose native language is Aramaic, a, a Jewish family. Um, it's called My Father's Paradise, and it's about the son discovering the language and the culture of his family. OK, so let's just do a brief comparison now between the two types of songs, um, so the yeshivish and the yinglish. 
Um, so they both have an English base, right? They're primarily English words and grammar. They both have some Yiddish words, but then they start to differ. So the common topics in the English songs are food and the immigrant experience, whereas some common topics in the yeshivish songs are learning and praying and um, the orthodox experience. You don't have full Yiddish sentences in the yeshivish one, but you do in the English one. Um, function words like with and and, you don't get those in the yeshivish ones. Um, and Yiddish grammar, you don't really get that so much either. In Yiddish pronunciation, you don't really get it, but you do have a few examples of that in the yeshivish song where they say yeshivish arayd, where they're trying to sound even more um, Yiddishy than the way that it might be pronounced in, in actual life. They would probably say Yiddish arayd, right? I'm, I'm coming to a conclusion here, but I want to bring in this quote from 1928 from a, um, a writer named H.B. Wells, not to be confused with H.G. Wells, and he, I assume it's a he, wrote... Judeo-German, meaning Yiddish, in America is inevitably doomed. There is no reasonable doubt that American Yiddish will, within a few, a very few years, lose its identity, at least as Judeo-German, will turn into Judeo-English, expire quietly, and finally become as delightfully musty and passé a subject for doctor's theses as Anglo-Saxon is today. What do you think? Was he right? No, he wasn't right because... First of all, Yiddish is alive and well, in, um, especially in Hasidic communities. I mean, you have, you have plenty of people over 60 who speak Yiddish, but in Hasidic communities, you have toddlers who are speaking Yiddish. Hun hundreds of th over 100,000 Yiddish speakers in America today, and many of those are Hasidim. Absolutely. There are many organizations in the United States and around the world that promote Yiddish culture and engage with Yiddish in a post-vernacular way, to use a term from Jeffrey Chandler, meaning that it's not their vernacular, but they convene around Yiddish, right? They, they celebrate Yiddish even if they can't understand full Yiddish sentences. Um, so, but that actually is in line with what he's talking about, that, that it's, it's sort of dying and so we're, we're, we're going to celebrate it. Um, but, but the Hasidim are, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's dying because the Yiddish language is, is continuing in the Hasidic community and in a few small pockets of non-Orthodox Jews who are speaking Yiddish to their children. Um, but then he's also right that Yiddish will turn into Judeo-English, right? That, that Jewish English is taking on a lot of the functions that Yiddish served, serving as a, an in-group language that combines elements of Hebrew and other languages with the local language as Yiddish developed in its early years in Germany, right? And I certainly agree with him that Judeo-English is a good topic for a doctor's thesis. <laughs> in fact, that was my, my um, dissertation. Um, called, and then I turned it into a book called Becoming From. And um, in that book, I talk about how Jews who become Orthodox learn the Orthodox speech patterns and um, how some of them avoid certain features of that Orthodox Jewish English, how some of them take on those features to an extreme. Um, and I talk about the process 
of that learning, how they... examples of that, of what they avoid and what they... Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, some, orthodox, some newly Orthodox Jews <clears throat> will avoid the grammatical construction staying by them because they feel that it's bad grammar. Um, <laughs> you agree with that. Um, but some of them will take it on to an extreme and use it even in places where, non, where people who grew up Orthodox wouldn't use it. Um, and then some of them will um, do what I call the bungee effect, which is they'll start by taking on Orthodox practices to an extreme, or as some of them will say, jumping off the deep end, and then they'll bounce back to a happy medium. They'll temper their use of clothing and language and foods um, that are common in the Orthodox community. Oh, of, oh, that's in both. Good question. Yeah, so people might start by saying, okay, I, I have to um, observe every th single thing that I can find, but then they'll find that some of those were actually just stringencies that weren't really required, and then they'll stop doing some of those stringencies. And I also um, have been engaging with Jewish English more recently in a um, website that I created called the Jewish English Lexicon where um, it's a Wikipedia-style site where people can add new entries. And we have over 1,000 entries so far. It's Hebrew, Yiddish, and other words that are used by Jews within English. And uh, so people can visit to see how a word is spelled and how it's, um, where it comes from and what other languages it's used in. And they can also add, they can make edits to exist, or suggest edits to existing entries. Uh, so I recommend that you visit this. And if you can think of Hebrew and Yiddish words that American Jews use that are not on there yet, or that Jews in the English-speaking world use, um, please uh, add them. And it will take us a few weeks, but eventually we'll, we'll add them in there. Uh, so thank you very much. <laughs> I had to add in, uh, I just had to add in some Ladino. Años, muchos y buenos means many good years, and it's a common parting phrase in uh, Ladino-speaking communities. Yeah. I wanted to say that Yiddish is also very much influenced by the country in which people live, and people in South America might not quite understand the Yiddish from the New York it's a great point that, that Yiddish around the world is different depending on the country that you're in and the local language. So Yiddish in Argentina is going to have a lot of Spanish influences. Yiddish in Israel will have a lot of modern Hebrew influences. And Yiddish in Hungary will have Hungarian influences. Absolutely. I mean, it absorbs languages from, it absorbs elements from the languages that it's in contact with. Yes? When I was about 10 years old, I was in Yeah. And it said chickens. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, so you get that now. I mean, that's Jewish English, right? You get um, English words written in Hebrew letters in a place like Williamsburg or Borough Park. Like I saw one mini mart, you know, mem, yud, nun, yud, right? Um, yeah. At one time, the They do. They absolutely do. Yeah. So they, uh, but also, Hebrew was considered the, uh, the holy language. So, uh, so that's where Aramaic came in. They speak Aramaic. That 
Yeah, and it's still used. Um, the Targum, the translation of the Bible from Hebrew into Aramaic, is still used as a tool for interpreting the Torah. Yes? Um, a friend of mine who had just moved here from New York came to visit me at my house, and she said, oh, she said, I had a hard time finding it, but I was so glad to see that there was a Hala Street that's great. That's a good one. I like that. Okay. <laughs> okay, other questions? Come, yes. Hentala? Yeah. Right, so hunt in Yiddish is hand, and hentala is little hand, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still say kepi to my kids. Watch your kepi. That's actually, I think that was on our, I think it was on our survey. It was one of those words that younger people do still know to some extent. Yeah. Kepi comes from, so in Yiddish, kop means head, and kepale is little head, diminutive form, and kepi is the anglicized version of that. No, unrelated. Um, it's a modern Hebrew word meaning dome, and uh, it, it came to mean skull cap. Yeah. And how many Jewish dogs are named Shana? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually something that's interesting because I've found a lot of balei tshuva, Jews who become Orthodox, <clears throat> will keep their pets, even though dogs are not that common in Orthodox communities um, to the right of the you know, modern to black hat continuum. Um, and so they'll keep their pets, even though it's not common, but they'll give them a Yiddish name. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I was once in Lakewood, and I, and I said to Mrs. Alice, and I was there for Rosh Hashanah, and I brought my dog to Shul and tied her up outside. <laughs> and on the way back, the cop stopped. He said, I didn't know you people were allowed to have dogs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Interesting. OK, yes. Yeah, well, the orthodoxy is, is uh, shall we say, perpetuating Yiddish. Uh, they don't read the lay uh, literature. That's right. All, That's they? right. So yeah. the literature, other than translation, probably is uh, not read anymore. Well, it's a good question. Um, in, in Hasidic communities, there is new Yiddish literature being created. Yeah. And there is a whole world of formerly from people who write in Yiddish, um, and also can, currently from people. Um, there's a website called Kavahoys, uh, where, meaning coffee house, where it's, it's in Yiddish and people have discussions in Yiddish, mostly Hasidic Jews. Yeah, but you're right that, I mean, they're not gonna be reading Sholem Aleichem in Paris, right, uh, for the most part, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah, the National Yiddish Book Center is in Western Massachusetts. That's where I started learning Yiddish. Uh, and it's a great organization. They started by collecting books that were about to be thrown away. And now they have millions of books. And they've distributed them to libraries around the world. So they're basically rescuing Yiddish literature. And they also do translation. And they do cultural programs relating to klezmer and Yiddish film and Yiddish theater. So if, you haven't, if you're not yet familiar with them, I recommend going to their website, yiddishbooks.org. Uh, as I understand it, one of their latest uh, ideas is to uh, teach the younger generation to be Yiddish 
Yes, they do have a fellowship for translation from Yiddish to English. Yeah. Yeah. In New York, there's an organization. I think it's a library called Yivo. Yivo, yes. Yes, so Yivo was started in, in Vilna, Vilnius, Lithuania, in, I think, 1925, and then moved to New York uh, during the war. And it's a Jewish research organization uh, focusing on Eastern Europe. Hebrew is also considered among one of almost the dead languages. Hebrew? Right. So Hebrew was used in ancient times, and then um, it became um, obsolete as a spoken language, but was maintained as a written language. And people continued to use it for text study and liturgy and for um, documents that they wrote in Hebrew, like um, business documents. Yes, exactly. It had a lot in common with Latin until the, um, the Zionist movement began, uh, the political Zionist movement. And in the late 19th century, Eliezer Ben Yehuda and others revived the Hebrew language as a spoken language, and now it's the language spoken by millions of people in Israel. The Hebrew text is the Ibn Chaya. Okay. Okay. Yes. Mm. Great. So the Milken Foundation? Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs>